Okay, so let me ask this question. How many of you struggle with or have moments where you look at the world and society around us and you think, what in the world is going on? How in the world do people believe this? How in the world do people do this? Do y'all have that thought ever? Every day, I understand. And so, as women of God, we are here because we want to gain wisdom, knowledge, and understanding. And so, we're going to start at the beginning. And so, I want you to quote Genesis 1-1 with me. In the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth. It's really important that that's the first verse in the Bible and that we start there because we always have to begin with God. The universe is God-centered. It's God-centered. Um, and my favorite verse from Romans that I tell you, 11.36, one of my life verses says, and I'm going to bring this up a lot during this study, for from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. It begins with him, it's through him, and it's for him. We have to always remember that because the problem is, in our, our natural selves, we look at everything with a man-centered view. Left to ourselves, everything is man-centered. That's why we need the Word and we need the Spirit of God to help us adjust our thinking and adjust our perspective. Throughout Scripture, God reveals himself. He reveals his name, his attributes, his glory, and many people call these his perfections. Um, it's important to know that God possesses all of his attributes at all times perfectly. He's not love one moment and wrath another moment. I want you to turn, hopefully you're still in Romans 1, save that place, and turn to Exodus 34, 6. I want to show you what became for Israel the working definition of God. Uh-huh, Exodus 34, 6. This is when um, Moses goes before the Lord, and the Lord says he's going to put him in the cleft of the rock, and he says, um, I will pass by, but you can't see my face. And so we're going to look at Exodus 34, and I'm going to start uh, in verse 5. Then the Lord came down in the cloud and stood there with him and proclaimed his name, the Lord. So often his name and his attributes are like interchangeable there. And he passed in front of Moses, proclaiming, The Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands and forgiving wickedness, rebellion, and sin. Now, that's what we're familiar with when it comes to the Lord. But we're not done. Yet. Yet. He does not leave the guilty unpunished. He punishes the children and their children for the sin of the fathers to the third and fourth generation. So even at the beginning, God was revealing that he's more than just love. And we all like the love and the forgiveness and all of those good things. Yet, we cannot lose sight of the yets in scripture. He does not leave the guilty unpunished. That speaks of his justice and his wrath. Now, we just started on our introduction to Romans, and we ended with the thesis statement. Have y'all been working on memorizing that? 
Okay, here, here's the Lisa Walker version that is a combination of, I don't know how many translations, okay? So this, this, is, this is my version. Uh, for I am not ashamed of the, gospel of, for the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God to salvation to everyone who believes, first for the Jew, then for the Gentile. For in the gospel, a righteousness, the righteousness of God is revealed, a righteousness that is by faith from first to last. For as it is written, the righteous or the just shall live by their faith. That's not perfect, but that's pretty close to the gist of it, okay? I want you to work on learning that. Paul has just given us the thesis of the whole thing. And we talked last week about the righteousness of God. Flows that he's holy, he's righteous, and then how the righteousness of God, we need his righteousness because we do not have his righteousness. We are sinful. And because God is holy, he has to judge sin. And we're and that's why we need salvation. That's why we need the gospel. And that's why wrath is necessary. And so out of that whole thing, and I ask y'all this question, like, why do we need salvation? That's what Paul is about to explain. He's just said the righteousness of God is revealed, a righteousness that comes by faith. So why do we need that righteousness? And that's what he's about to argue for the next, not just tonight, but we're going to move through. Tonight we're going to start with the general argument that applies to pagans or unbelievers as well. And then he's going to narrow it down. Next week we're going to talk about the religious. And then he's going to make his argument, and we're going to be in all of this until we get to the wonderful turning point where we get the great news because you need the bad news before you can appreciate the good news. So let's start in verse 18, and let's see what he says. So he's just given us the thesis, and he says, and one thing, remember at the very beginning I told you that, that the book of Romans is set forth in arguments, okay? So really look at your transition words for Although, because, since, it's just stacking one reason upon the result and why things happen. That's what you're going to see in Romans. So those transition words are very important. So starting in verse 18, the wrath of God is being, is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of men who suppress the truth by their wickedness. So right there, we see that why we need God's righteousness, why we have a need for salvation is because of the wrath of God. Now, what is God's wrath? The word there is orge, if I'm saying that right. And it means a settled, determined indignation. In regard to God, it's anger against sin, against impurity and evil. God has wrath against sin because he's holy. He's pure, he's separate, he's perfect. He must have wrath against sin, or he wouldn't be holy. Now, we have trouble with that because when we think of wrath, we think of what we generally have, which is more the Greek word thumos, which is an emotional outburst, okay? <laughs> because we, once again, remember how I started? We have a tendency to view everything from our man-centered perspective of how when we, like the wrath, like we're angry. This God, it's not an emotional outburst. It is a settled expression against impurity and evil. He must have that or he would not be just. God's wrath in the Bible is always judicial. It is the wrath of a judge administering justice. So I want you to think of it. It's not angry explosion just because he's in a bad mood. Okay, I've had plenty of those days, especially as a mom. 
This word is used extensively in the Old Testament, and it's used most in Romans in the New Testament. Now, and just to give you a balanced perspective, everybody knows John 3, 16, right? For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. We, we love that. That is the gospel. That is our hope. That is what God has done. But right after that, in John 3, 36, it says, whoever believes in the son has eternal life. Great. Whoever rejects the son will not see life for God's wrath remains on him. God's wrath can't remain unless it's already there for someone who's not a believer. So we, we often pick the great verses, but we don't necessarily want to have the bad news that the wrath is there. Much teaching on God's wrath has been missing in the church. Without a deep and clear understanding of God's wrath, you will never have a deep understanding and love for the goodness in the gospel, the goodness of God in the gospel. You can never appreciate the good news until you know the bad. And so any gospel presentation has to start with God's wrath, our sin and God's wrath. So let me give you this truth. The essence of God's action in wrath is to give men what they choose. The essence of God's action in wrath is to give men what they choose. In Genesis 3, Adam chose to hide from God and remove himself from God, and therefore God removed him from the garden. He gave him what he wanted. He didn't want to be in the presence of God once sin came, so he removed him. So the essence of God's wrath, of God's action in wrath, is to give men what they choose. Now, verse 19 says, all right, so we talked about against the godlessness and wickedness of men who suppress the truth, okay? We also see that God's wrath is being revealed, okay? Now, let's talk about that for a second. His wrath is being revealed. Because normally we think about God's wrath, we think about revelation, right? When the wrath of God, the bowls, and, and all of those big judgments, which is true. That's going to be the final pour, outpouring of God's wrath. But right now, it's being revealed. So the question is how? It means it's constantly revealed. God's wrath has always been revealed to fallen mankind. So let's think about this. We saw God's wrath in the Garden of Eden. When death came, they had to leave the garden. Remember, his wrath is his judicial judgment against sin. We saw God's wrath in the flood. We see God's wrath in the Old Testament in Sodom and Gomorrah. We see God's wrath in the drowning of Pharaoh's army. We see God's wrath revealed in the sacrificial system. An animal had to die for sin. And ultimately, we see God's wrath as he poured it out on the cross. So God's wrath has continually been revealed against sin. And it says from heaven. Okay, so there are two ways that God's wrath is revealed. One is through God's moral order, his moral and physical laws. There is built-in consequences when someone sins, the moral law of cause and effect. We all know that. One reason why you need to let your kids suffer consequences, so they learn that early on, okay? You don't want to intervene and and always keep them from consequences. There are natural consequences built in. So that's one way that God reveals his wrath. 
The second way is when he directly and personally intervenes to pour out a measure of judgment or wrath in some cases. So both of those are happening. Yes, God's wrath is revealed through his moral order, his moral and physical laws, the way the universe is set up, the moral law of cause and effect. There are going to be consequences when you make bad choices. The other way is through his direct and personal intervention at times. And so what is the cause of him pouring out wrath? It says against godlessness and wickedness. Okay? So the next truth is wrath is the required response of a holy God to godlessness and wickedness. Wrath is the required response of a holy God. That's key because he's holy. Wrath is the required response of a holy God to godlessness and wickedness. Wrath is the required response of a holy God to godlessness and wickedness. He would not be holy if he just ignored it. Now, it says that men suppress the truth by their wickedness. You see, the problem is not mental, that they don't know what's right. The problem is moral. Wickedness in man causes him to suppress his knowledge of God, which we're going to call here truth. God not only is truth, he has revealed himself as truth to mankind, because that's what it says. It says it's against their godlessness and wickedness, and they're suppressing the truth. And why? And this is how we know that. Since, because, verse 19, what may be known about God is plain to them because God has made it plain. Okay? Now, when it says what may be known about God, there are some things that we can know about God. We can't know everything about God because he's infinite. Okay? And I think all of eternity, we will be discovering new things. That's one of the beauties of heaven. He's never going to get old because there's always going to be new things to enjoy and discover about God. But we can know some things about God, the things that he's revealed. Okay? He's made himself known uh, to man, specifically to pagan man in this passage. And that's not only in what we're going to see in creation, but even in their consciences, in their conscience. Okay? And so it goes on, and he says, For since the creation of the world, there's the key for creation, God's invisible qualities, and the two that they're listed are his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made, so that men are without excuse. Creation reveals God's eternal power, you see that in nature. You look at the mountains, the oceans, the storms, the winds. You see the power of God. You're dwarfed by it as a human being. You also see his divine nature because you see that there is a designer. There's order. There's complexity. No matter how many people want to deny it and come up with alternative views, it's obvious. Now, I want to make a point here. It says being clearly seen from what has been made. That is a Greek word that's only used two times in the New Testament. The word is poiema, and it's the word that we get poem from. So when he talks about creation and what has been made, or work, its workmanship, it's used here, and it's used in Ephesians 2.10, for we are God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus to do good works. So creation is his poem, and we are his poem. A poem communicates 
um, truth, beauty, emotion. It's to draw you in. So God has made creation to do that for us. And God has made us to do that, to reveal himself and to be that workmanship and poem. It's designed. He has designed it. So keep your spot and go to Psalm 19. I want to show you Psalm 19. We talked about what can, what can you learn about God from creation? What can you not learn about God from creation? Okay? So we know that we can learn about his power and um, the fact that he's a designer. But I want to show you Psalm 19 because this talks about both kinds of revelation. The kind of understanding, of general understanding of God in creation is called general revelation. And we get this from the first part of this psalm. The heavens declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim the work of his hands. Day after day they pour forth speech. Night after night they display knowledge. There is no speech or language where their voice is not heard. Their voice goes out into all the earth and their words to the ends of the world. In the heavens he has pitched a tent for the sun, which is like a bridegroom coming forth from his pavilion, pavilion like a champion rejoicing to run his course. It rises to one end of the heavens and makes its circuit to the other. Nothing is hidden from its heat. So you see the poem of God in creation right there that reveals who he is. Now, we're not going to read this, but it's so interesting. I love this psalm because then he shifts to special revelation. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The statutes of the Lord are trustworthy, making wise the simple. Now he speaks of his word. And so we can know there is a God. We can know his power. We can see his hand. We can feel a drawing to him just from creation. So men are without excuse. There's no speech or language, it says, where their voice is not heard. Talking about the heavens. All right. I read an interesting thing about Helen Keller. You know, she was she couldn't hear, speak, or see. And so when Ann Sullivan began to learn to communicate with her, she began to tell her about God. And Helen Keller said, I already know him. I just didn't know who he was or his name. So what does that tell you about how God has put in the hearts of man? I, I thought that was just really powerful. And that's why men are without excuse. But we need special revelation, his word, to know the truth of the gospel, how to be saved. Um, God draws us, and when we seek him, he says we will find him. But when you suppress the truth because you don't want to have someone over you, that's when we start moving into this wrath of God and what we're seeing here. Okay? The message is the glory of God. Um, so I want to ask you... Um, let me see if I got that right. Yes. When is the last time that you took time to be still and quiet alone in God's creation? To let him speak to you through the poem of his glory. It's always been hard, but ladies, the world in which we live with all our technology, it's really hard to be quiet in creation. It's very healing. It's very healing, and it teaches you how to hear his voice. Jonathan Edwards, one of the greatest thinkers in a I love his writing. He would spend hours out in the woods with the Lord. And that's where he got so many of his deep insights because he really communed with the Lord. Naturalistic evolution is evidence of mankind suppressing the truth of God spoken in creation. Even though there's more and more evidence for an intelligent designer, it's the wickedness that causes this suppression of truth. 
So I want to make this point. It's not lack of knowledge. It's the suppression of the knowledge that's the problem. It's not lack of knowledge. There's no speech or language that their voice is not heard. It's the suppression. And so he says, so men are without excuse. Um, now, let's look at man's response. We said they're without excuse. I think we're in 21. Yes. Four are because although they knew God. Now, we've already made the argument that God has made himself revealed on some level. Although they knew God, they neither glorified him as God or gave thanks to him, but their thinking became futile and their foolish hearts were darkened. So we see right there that this is what happens. You know God, you glorify him, you give him thanks. That's the right response. However, God reveals himself at least in nature. You choose not to acknowledge him as God. You choose not to be thankful to him. The next result is your thinking becomes futile or useless or worthless, and your foolish heart is darkened. The moment you choose not to glorify God as God and give him the proper place in submission to him, the moment you choose not to be thankful, you start moving away from him and your thinking becomes worthless and your heart is darkened. That is the honest truth right here. It affects your mind. It affects your emotions. You lose understanding and your desires become perverted. God is the only one worthy and you reject him, you become worthless. You hang on to God, you have worth. You, you reject him, you lose your worth. I cannot stress how important these two things are. God in his rightful place elicits thanksgiving. God not in his rightful place removes thanksgiving. Scripture is replete with commands and encouragement to give thanks. If you want to jot these down, I'm just going to give you a few. There's so many I couldn't do them all. And you can look at these later. You may already know all of these. 1 Thessalonians 5, 16 through 18. Philippians 4, 6. Psalm 107, it's a consistent refrain throughout that long psalm. Ephesians 5, 20. What? Psalm 107. Yes. Ask me, if you need me to repeat, just stop me. 4, 6, Ephesians 5, 20, Psalm 100, Hebrews 12, 28, Daniel 6, 10. So here's a truth. A truly thankful heart is a heart of peace, joy, and contentment. A truly thankful heart is a heart of peace, joy, and contentment. It's a weapon, ladies. It is a weapon in spiritual warfare to give thanks and to focus on what you do have and not what you don't have. A truly thankful heart is a heart of peace, joy, and contentment. Ingratitude and discontentment destroy your peace and joy. Ingratitude and discontentment destroy your peace and joy. So let me ask you, what is the primary response of your heart? Is it gratitude or is it discontentment? It's exactly what happened in the garden. 
They had the entire garden. They had everything they wanted. Everything was perfect. And there was one tree, one tree. And the moment their gaze got on that one tree and they wanted it, look what happened. It's, it's the same old story. And so then we start to see the progression. Their thinking became futile. Their foolish hearts were darkened. And then it says in verse 22, and this is where it gets really interesting. Although they claim to be wise, okay, so the darker your heart gets, the wiser you think you are, okay? I'm just saying, so watch out. So um, although they claim to be wise, what did they become? Fools, okay? The next consequence is you start to think you're wise, when you start moving away from God, you start to think you're wise. The further man moves from God, the more he believes in his own wisdom and the more foolish he becomes. The further man moves from God, the more he believes in his own wisdom and the more foolish he becomes. Is this starting to explain some things to you about what we're seeing around us, how people believe some of the stuff they do? And I want to say this, foolish in the Bible always has a moral component, okay? The word foolish, a fool, it, there's always a moral component. It's not just a mental disability, okay? It's choosing and making these poor choices. And then in verse 23, it says, they exchanged, so this is really wise, y'all. They exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images made to look like mortal man, birds, animals, and reptiles. Well, that's a great move. Okay, it's easy for us to look at that, but we begin to see the foolishness of moving away. Now, keep your spot and go to Isaiah 44. I want to show you this in the Old Testament, a great illustration of this. Isaiah 44, and we're going to start in verse 6. And I want you to see what God has to say and, and what these people are doing. This is what the Lord says, Israel's King and Redeemer, the Lord Almighty. I am the first and I am the last. From me, through me, and to me. You see it everywhere if you start looking for it. I am the first and I am the last. Apart from me, there is no God. Who then is like me? Let him proclaim it. Let him declare and lay it out before me. What has happened since I established my ancient people and what is yet to come? Yes, let him foretell what will come. Do not tremble, do not be afraid. Did I not proclaim this and foretell it long ago? You are my witnesses. Is there any God beside me? No, there is no other rock. I know not one. So he's established who he is. Now let's look at what their choices are. All, and this is, this is the illustration of what we're seeing in Romans. All who make idols are nothing, and the things they treasure are worthless. Those who would speak up for them are blind. They are ignorant to their own shame. Who shapes a god and casts an idol which can profit him nothing? He and his kind will be put to shame. Craftsmen are nothing but men. Let them all come together and take their stand. They will be brought down to terror and infamy. The blacksmith takes a tool and works it in the coals. He shapes an idol with hammers. He forges it with the might of his arm. He gets hungry and loses his strength. He drinks no water and grows faint. The carpenter makes a line and makes an outline with a marker. He roughs it out with chisels and marks it with a compass and shapes it in the form of a man, of man in all his glory. I think God's being a little facetious there. That it may dwell in a shrine. 
He cuts down cedars or perhaps took a cypress or oak. He let it grow among the trees of the forest or planted a pine and the rain made it grow. It's man's fuel for burning. Some of it he takes and warms himself. He kindles a fire, he bakes bread, but he also fashions a god and worships it. He makes an idol and bows down to it. Half the wood he burns in the fire, over it it prepares his meal, roasts his meat, eats his fill. He warms himself and says, oh, I'm warm, I see the fire. And from the rest, he makes a god, his idol, and he bows down and worships it. Now, what does that say? Is that a fool? But look at this. They know nothing. Wait a second. Yeah. He prays to it and says, save me, you are my god. They know nothing. They understand nothing. Their eyes are plastered over. They cannot see. Their minds closed. They cannot understand. And look at 19. No one stops to think. No one has the knowledge or understanding to say. Half of it I use for fuel. And I baked bread over its coals and roasted meat and ate. Shall I make a detestable thing from what's left? Shall I bow down to a block of wood? He feeds on ashes. A deluded heart misleads him. And he cannot save himself or even say, Is not this thing in my hand a lie? Do you see the progression there? It's easy for us to see that here or in someone else. Guess where it's not so easy to see? So here's the truth. A deluded heart makes you a prisoner of your own lie. A deluded heart makes you a prisoner to your own lie. A deluded heart makes you a prisoner to your own lie. So what lies are you believing? What has captured your mind and heart, brought discontent and a lack of thanksgiving to God? What we read seems so foolish to us, but even believers fall into this. The moment we choose to put something other, and it's usually self, above God, we become bond slaves to the thing that we choose, often to ourselves. The moment we step into ingratitude, we always want something more, something extra. We begin coveting. The world feeds that for us, y'all. It just feeds it, feeds it, feeds it. Satan feeds it, and it's a battle, okay? This also explains why some highly intelligent people think that they're too wise to accept the word of God. You see the progression? Once you start rejecting. Um, let me read you this, my next note. John Piper, I think, wrote this. He said, the first creature man substitutes for God is himself. And Voltaire said, God made man in his own image. And man returned the favor. Made God in our own image. I loved that. Every form of idolatry is a form of self-worship. Every false god appeals to man's fallen nature and entices him to glorify and indulge himself. So we all have to be on guard. Now let's go to verse 24. Therefore, because they chose this, God gave them over to the sinful desires of their hearts to sexual impurity for the degrading of their bodies with one another. The consequence of this suppression of God and rejection of him is God gave them over. That means he removed his restraining hand and let the natural consequences take over. When men persistently abandon God, God abandons them. Not forever, because as long as you're alive, there's a place for repentance and returning to God. But he steps away. 
and I'm not going to read these because of our time, but jot down two places that you see this, not just here in Romans, two other places. There's plenty, but here's two, Psalm 81, 11, and 12, and Hosea 4, 17, where God steps away and lets natural consequences take over. Psalm 81, 11, and 12, and Hosea 4, 17. So it said he gave them over to sexual impurity and the degrading of their bodies. So here's the truth. Increased sexual impurity is a sign of God's wrath. Increased sexual impurity is a sign of God's wrath, of him removing his hand and letting it take over. We see that certainly in our culture. We really began to see it in the 60s. And it says they exchanged the truth of God for a lie. Okay? That's in verse 25. They exchanged the truth of God for a lie. Well, that's a smart move. And worshiped and served created things rather than the creator who is forever praised. Okay? So... You start stepping away with one thing, it goes deeper and deeper, and you see the progression. So it's a wonderful or a terrible warning, I should say. And then 25, um, I think, did we just read that? Because of this, okay, let's keep going. Um, because of this, in 26, God gave them over to shameful lust. So we start with regular sexual immorality. Now we're moving into the next stage Shameful lusts, the progression, even their women exchanged natural relations for unnatural ones. In the same way men abandoned natural relations with women, were inflamed with lust for one another. Men committed indecent acts with other men and received in themselves the due penalty for their perversion. I'm going to tell you that the reality is it's all rooted in the exchange. When you say, I don't want you as creator and ruler, I don't want your ways, your plan, then you start moving into subverting God's plan. God's plan is that he created men and he created women. He created a man and a woman for sexual relationships in a family, in a covenant committed relationship. That was his plan. So we kick the committed relationship aside and there's heterosexual sex all over the place. Then we get to the next stage where we deny God's plan. And we, we say, no, this is, this is what I think I am. I am denying not only what you say in your word, God, but even what science tells us. We used to just cling to science. That was our first idol that we worshiped instead of God's word. Now we've kicked that to the curb because you see the progression. It's all about what I want. It's self on the throne. And it is a perversion. And this whole thing, it drives me crazy. You, you can love who you want. Well, the problem with that is how we have defined love in our culture. We have defined love pretty much as, you know, sexual attraction and what's going to satisfy me. It is not the sacrificial love that we see in the word. That's why we need God's word. So the next truth is increased homosexuality is a sign of God's wrath. Increased homosexuality is a sign of God's wrath. Furthermore, or since... I'm in verse 28. They did not think it worthwhile to retain knowledge of God. So you see how it all goes back to the where, who, where God is in? It's not just these, all of these things are results of the one exchange. 
When God is not in his rightful place, you begin to move away. That's the core. We're going to look at all these different sins. They're just symptoms. They're just symptoms of the problem. When God is not in his rightful place. Since um, they did not think it worthwhile to retain the knowledge of God, he gave them over to a depraved mind to do what ought not to be done. So you've got darkened thinking where you're having trouble judging. A depraved mind thinks what is right is wrong and what's wrong is right. That's depraved. So that's the next stage. It means crooked, corrupt. It's rejected, disqualified, worthless. That's the meaning of depraved. So you go from darkened to this. And the truth is, the mind that finds God worthless becomes worthless itself. The mind that finds God worthless becomes worthless itself. So what does it mean? What do we see when God removes his hand and abandons? And remember, when I say abandon, there's always grace, but God does withdraw and give you over to what you choose. And that's what we're going to see in 29 through 31. And, and that's why I want you to look at all this and not just think this is about sexual immorality or homosexuality. This is about all the sins that flow out of the exchange of not retaining knowledge of God and having him in his rightful place and being grateful to him. Furthermore, oh, wait, wait a second, let me move on down. They have become filled with every kind of wickedness, evil, greed, and depravity. They are full of envy, envy murder, strife, deceit, and malice. They are gossips, slanders, God-haters, insolent, arrogant, boastful. They invent ways of doing evil and disobey their parents. They are senseless, faithless, heartless, ruthless. What does abandonment of God look like? Here it is, and it's not pretty. And we see it. I heard some of you say, what do we not see on that list? I mean, it's the reality. And so... It doesn't end there. It says, although they know God's righteous decree that those who do such things deserve death, and if not the word of God in their own conscience, most cultures have these things. They not only continue to do these things, but they approve of those who practice it. C.S. Lewis said this, the lost enjoy forever the horrible freedom that they have demanded and are therefore self-enslaved. The lost enjoy forever the horrible freedom. And you think about how much that's used. Sexual freedom, I should have the freedom, you know, freedom, freedom, freedom. So you enjoy this horrible freedom that you've demanded, and you become self-enslaved. That's why we need to see what God has to say. And so, um, John MacArthur said, when man seeks to elevate himself for his own purposes and by his own standards, he inevitably does the opposite. The more human life is exalted for its own sake, the more it's debased. Are we seeing that today? The more it's de- the same society that exalts man, and, and this is so true of us, the same exi- society that exalts man, at least in your words, incessantly degrades him. You think of the sexual immorality, you think of um, children that are uh, the sex slavery, and just on and on it goes. John Piper said, Paul is teaching why a society degenerates into unrestrained, debauched, destructive evil. A trait of sinking into this decay 
is the inability to see what's happening. When we have the Spirit of God and the Word of God, we can come apart from it and we can see it clearly. That's why we need it. The root of it all is they did not see fit to acknowledge God. The essence of the human problem is that we don't want God, we want self-determination. The failure to love God breeds evil. That's why we need the great reversal. We need God's righteousness that he said in, in verses 16 and 17 that is being revealed. And we need the renewing of our mind that next semester we're going to see in Romans 12. You need God to do his part with giving us his righteousness, and then our part is the renewing of our mind. That's the great reversal. So let me ask, where do you see yourself in this lesson? And what warning has God given you for yourself, for those you love, that you know, for our country? And what are you going to do in response to that warning? Paul has begun with the gospel, the in, the, in the gospel, the need of man, especially the pagan in this passage. We are under God's wrath and without excuse. Next week, he's going to continue, especially in regard to the religious, the Jews. We have to begin in the dark to appreciate the light. Now, I want to give you this quote that I just love by a guy. I had to look him up. I didn't know who he was. I found this quote years ago. His name is Gustav Stalin. He was a German theologian. Couldn't find out a lot about him, but I love this quote. Only he who knows the greatness of wrath will be mastered by the greatness of mercy. Only he who knows the greatness of wrath, which is why we're studying it and why Paul wrote about it, only he who knows the greatness of wrath will be mastered by the greatness of mercy. Gustav Stalin, S-T-A-H-L-I-N. Only he who knows the greatness of wrath will be mastered by the greatness of mercy. And so, ladies, may we be mastered by the greatness of mercy. But may we first really take time to think on the wrath. Let me just pray for us. God, we just come before you and we just ask forgiveness for our small views of you. Lord, how... We just hang on to limited uh, attributes and thoughts about you that we like, and we harbor those, and sometimes we make you into our own image. God, we pray for your help to expand our hearts and our minds to see the greatness of who you are and all your perfections, that we would truly grab hold of your wrath. And Lord, um, not that we would live in a terrible fear of that, but that we would be moved to be mastered by the mercy that you have poured out through Jesus Christ. We praise you and thank you for that. And I just pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you, ladies, for being here.